You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Verse 6 through 13 is where we're at. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, as we come to Romans chapter 9, to this incredible passage concerning your work of salvation being by grace alone, Lord, we pray that you would be the one that teaches us today, that you would be the one that preaches to us today, that you would be the one that spurs us on towards missions and towards evangelism as we dig into this glorious truth of election by grace. And Lord, we pray that where there is so much mystery and where there's so much controversy, uh, Lord, that you would just show us what you want us to know. Lord, that you would give us brains, that you would give us minds to comprehend the deep things of God. But Lord, where there's secret things that belong to you, Lord, may we just put our trust in you, Lord, that, that you know, you know where, where mystery begins. Lord, I pray that we would just encourage one another on towards knowing you and understanding you and the depths of who you are. And Lord, at the same time, that you would increase our faith. Lord, just uh, pray that you would help me today to be a servant to Calvary Chapel and to just rightly divide your word, to, to plow straight lines through the text today. Lord, you know I'm weak, but we praise you that you are strong. And you're the one that wrote this chapter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, um, we come now to uh, one of the most controversial chapters in uh, the New Testament, and uh, a set of controversial chapters, chapters 9 through 11. And just let me say real quick before we get going, uh, little announcements in the middle of the service, you don't mind, do you? If you get hot at any point because you're in the sun, please don't hesitate to move into the shade, or if you get cold and you want to move into the sun, just uh, pretty low-key today, so... Uh, don't be afraid. But uh, here in chapter 9 through 11, these controversial 
chapters and you're probably wondering how I'm going to teach it. And uh, you're right up there with me because I'm wondering how I'm going to teach it too. So, right, we're all, uh, we're all equal here in that. No, um, you know, it's impossible to cover all the questions that are going to arise as we go through uh, these chapters. It's going to take quite a few Sundays uh, to cover it all. And um, if you've been a Christian for very long, then you're aware that uh, these chapters are surrounded by controversy, namely the discussion regarding God's sovereignty, and then what seems to be on the other end of the spectrum, man's responsibility. It's a very big topic, and uh, as many men as I listened to in the last few weeks, as many men, bright men, just intellectual men, uh, guys that uh, I very much pale in comparison to, uh, these men all just understand they can't wrap their heads fully around it. And yet we do want to do our due diligence and spending time in the Word and going chapter by chapter through it and worshiping the Lord and the inspired Word that we have uh, before us. But this debate between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility has gone on for thousands of years, actually. And any system that doesn't leave room for mystery or for enigma is not a good system. This text is going to raise a lot of questions, and we're going to try to answer some of them in the weeks to come and in our small groups, and we're going to work through the Word together. But uh, you all need to be okay with a cliffhanger, okay? You guys have to be okay with being left hanging for a few weeks because there's just not enough time as we're here today in the park to answer all questions and to dive in to all of the texts. Now, the main topic here in these chapters is actually Israel. It's God's plan for Israel. It's God's sovereignty over Israel. The main topic is not actually the doctrine of election. Having said that, I don't mean that election is not a topic in this chapter and that it's not important, but it's just not Paul's main point. Sometimes Paul's main point isn't what's important to you and I, but it's still his main point. Now, as we study Israel and God's past and present and future plan for uh, his people, the topic of election comes up. The topic of predestination, these glorious truths, these glorious doctrines are brought up. In chapter 9, we're going to look at Israel's past, God's election over them, but also in that election, they've rejected God. They've rejected the Messiah, which takes us to chapter 10. We see Israel's present state, that they've rejected the Christ. And then chapter 11, we see Israel's future, that one day they will be restored by God. And so if you just brought a pen with you today and you're a note taker and you just want to write in the margin of your Bible, perhaps write down that the underlying theme of Romans 9 through 11 is the sovereignty of God in his working with Israel. The sovereignty of God in his working with Israel. Now from the scriptures, we know that God is completely sovereign. This means that God possesses in and of himself all power, all control, and all authority over all everything, okay? 
Does that kind of wrap it up real nicely with the bow? God's all powerful, all controlling over everything. There are zero limitations to the sovereignty of God. As the psalmist says in 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. For Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deep places. Now let's contrast God's sovereignty with the sovereignty of man. Man's sovereignty is limited. God's sovereignty is without limit. Man's sovereignty is corrupted because he is inherently corrupt as a result of his sinful nature. As the saying that we all are aware of, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's man's sovereignty. In contrast, God's sovereignty is without flaw because he is without flaw. He is flawless. And so we must understand God's sovereignty within the confines of Scripture and in accordance with his character, that he is holy, he is good, he is love. And because he is sovereign, he has the right to elect. And so we see in chapter 9 the doctrine of election. What is election? Well, it's similar to how we know it as with our presidential candidates that we've got coming up. You know, when we elect somebody, we have chosen them. In the same way, God has chosen some for salvation. In John chapter 3.16, we read, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see that everybody is called to the kingdom. There's a general call. If you're here today, there's a call going forth into this microphone and through the snake cable and back to the sound booth and out the speakers. There's a call being presented by a preacher today to you to repent of your sins and to be reconciled to the living God. And everyone here has heard that call. You've been called today. But we also see within Scripture that there is God's effectual calling. That within God's sovereignty, he, He's working in His sovereignty. And He's calling men to Himself with His foreknowledge that man will believe and respond to that calling. And so in John 3.16, as I just said it, we see that phrase, whoever believes in him, whoever rests in him, whoever puts his trust in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. D.L. Moody said, the elect are the whosoever will. That's the elect. Whosoever will. And Moody goes on to say, and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. So what are you today? Have you yielded to the call of God? God always initiates salvation. No man can come to the Father unless the Lord draws him. Man doesn't come by his own good will or by, you know, just, I'm a good person. I'm going to come to God. I'm really just, I'm going to do this. Man doesn't do that. God calls man. And whoever will believe in him, when he hears that call, you won't perish. You're the elect. 
But whoever won't, you're the non-elect. The sovereign election of God is clearly displayed here in chapter 9 in his choice of the nation of Israel. Now, before we go on, we're going to do some definitions, some of these deep doctrines that we're going to be looking at. Some of the definitions we found back in chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. Remember, we studied in depth, for we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love God and then those who are the called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say, for whom he foreknew, so there's a big word, foreknew, he also predestined, another big word, to be conformed to the image of his son. And so Paul unpacks what he means behind God's purpose chapter 8 28 through chapters 9 through 11 now when it all comes down to it we're going to end up at the end of chapter 11 and we're going to say like paul oh the depths and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the lord and who has become his counselor who is first given to him that he should pay him back? You know, theology always produces doxology. Whenever we dig into the deep truths of God, we just have to worship and pray and just say, Lord, you are so big, you are so vast. How, who am I to counsel you? Who am I to say how you do things? And that's what we're going to end up doing by the end of chapter 11 and probably every week. We're just going to say, oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. I just, man, we're digging and we're diving and we're looking for diamonds and pearls, but man, the ocean of just the knowledge of God is so deep. When we look at election, foreknowledge, predestination, we don't get it or possibly see how it all could work together. And Paul didn't really either. And that's why he just ends in worship. Now, we look there in Romans 8, 29 at that word, foreknew. Okay? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So, foreknew. What does that mean, to foreknow something? It's pretty simple. Just break it up a little bit. It just means to know beforehand. Okay, so God in his sovereignty, he knows all things beforehand. He's what we call omniscient has all knowledge and has foreknowledge both actual and possible past present and future completely perfectly simultaneously and eternally he knows it you know there's three knowledges of god as i've been reading in a book by kenneth keithley you know god knows all that could happen and there's a million, bajillion, gajillion things that could happen. It's really nearly infinite. And God knows it. And you know, God knows all the things that would happen. Well, with all these possibilities, this and this and this and this and this happened, this happened, he knows what would happen. If this. God knows it. I, I don't even begin to understand it. And then, in God's sovereignty, in his choice, in his choosing, in his election, he knows all the things that will happen. See, God picks one of those paths and he just says, 
this is what will happen. This is what I've determined. This is what I have chosen. He foreknows. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, the Lord tells Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So before Jeremiah was even born, God knew him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we read that Christians are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And so something we know about who God chooses for salvation and in the midst of it all is that God has foreknowledge. He knows who will believe. And in a way, and in a way just a, a, a part of it is that in his election, which is based on his foreknowledge, he looks and he says, these are those that will believe, that will respond and just yield, not of works, but just by faith, respond to the salvation of God. Now, we also have the big word predestined there in chapter 8, verse 29. And we can look over in Ephesians chapter 1, and that it gives us a good understanding of what this predestination is, Ephesians 1, 4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Did you catch that? He chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. And then it says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now underline this if you're there, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption according to the good pleasure of his will. So part of the mystery is that in God's election and in God's choosing, it's just part of the good pleasure of his will. He's sovereign. Who is God to choose according? He's God. He's God. We're going to read in a couple weeks, as it looks like that's finally when we'll make it there in verse 14. Who, you know, should the thing say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Why have you chosen? He's God. He's sovereign. He's omniscient. He's eternal. He has the right in his sovereignty to choose and to predestine according to the good pleasure of his will. So his choosing, his election, so far we've seen it in 1 Peter 1, 2, in Ephesians 1, 5. First of all, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. In his foreknowledge, he knows who's going to believe. And secondly, it's according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then in Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So in his election, in his predestiny to destined beforehand it's according to the purpose 
of working out his will. And so there's quite a few things that wrap up into election, that wrap up into his predetermining and his predestining. You go to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, and the Lord basically says this, I love you because... Are you hanging on? Why, why does he love me? You know, what, what's, what's with his predestiny? What's with his calling? What's with his election? I love you because I love you. That's it. <laughs> How do you like that? I love you because I love you. And so wives, when that's all your husbands can say to you on Valentine's Day, you know what? We're just following our creator, right? When we just write in the card, I love you because... Oh, he's just such a Romeo. Because I love you. All right, that's awesome. That's awesome. Just taking it, taking a line from our father there. Alistair Begg says, predestination is a difficult doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. And it's a profitable doctrine. As Eric Alexander says, it's not a bomb to be dropped on people, a banner to be marched under, but a bastion for the souls of those who are in Christ. It's a fortress for we who are in Christ. You'll notice back in Romans 8, 28 through 30, that he who is predestined, these he's also called to be conformed into the image of his Son. And it all ends in glory. There's a fortress to know that in his predestiny, he's justified, he's sanctified, and he's glorified us. Now these truths that seem to be contradictory to us or paradoxes are not contradictory in heaven. And as much as Kevin and Chad and myself are just going to try to work through the word with you all and, and uh, dive in and get the treasures of these awesome doctrines, uh, we don't have it totally figured out. And everyone we listen to doesn't have it totally figured out. Everyone we read. It's not the job of the pastor to explain the unexplainable. We can't. That's why it's unexplainable. But we want to do our best to search out what God has revealed to us in the Scripture. So as we get to chapter 9, if that will ever happen, you wonder, we are prefaced with chapter 8. You guys remember, chapter 8 is a treasure box there. So encouraging. It's a high point where Paul says, you know, what shall separate us from the love of God? And he just goes through a list, you know. Shall death or life or angels or principalities or things present or things to come or height or depth or sword or any other created thing, will it separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And the answer is no. And we rejoice in that, don't we, Christians? Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And yet, then we came to chapter 9 last week. You guys remember chapter 9 last week, verses 1 through 5, where Paul has continual sorrow and anguish of heart? Why? Anybody remember? For his countrymen, for Israel, 
who were going to hell, who had rejected the Messiah and were excommunicated from relationship with God. They forfeited these promises, and he lists in verses 3 and 4, chapter 9 here, about eight promises and beautiful privileges that Israel has had, and yet Paul weeps because they've rejected the Messiah, and the majority of Israelites are in hell right now. And so if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then what's up with Israel? There's a problem here. And we as Christians would even ask, how can we trust God's promises? If God made all these covenants with Israel and gave them all these blessings and privileges that are similar to those blessings and privileges that are within the church, promises after covenant, sealed with blood, that they would come to pass. And yet there's Israelites going to hell. How can we trust the promises of God that are found in the gospel? Trust the promise that nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The question arises, does the gospel, the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, does it violate God's promises to Israel? And if it does, how can we trust the promises of God? If nothing can separate us from God's love, what about Israel? So we're going to look at three things, and we probably won't get to all three today. I have to lay a little groundwork with some of those key words and the doctrines we're looking at. We're going to see that in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, the promises of God are so great and so powerful and so faithful. The promises of God transcend three things, rise high above three things. Number one, they rise above human expectation. Okay, write this in your notes. The promises of God transcend human expectation. Secondly, human exertion. And they rise above, thirdly, human selection. We often find fault with God as a result of our own misunderstanding of certain promises. So we need to know biblically that number one today, God's promise transcends high above human expectation. So what was the expectation? What was the expectation? Let's just look at verse 6 here in Romans chapter 9. Where it says, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect for they are not all Israel who are of Israel so what's the expectation here here's the expectation that all ethnic Israel should be saved automatically okay that was the expectation of the Jews if you have the blood of Abraham coursing through your veins and through your heart then you should be saved automatically because of genealogy after all, look at the privileges that they had in verses 4 through 5. Specifically, that through this lineage, Christ comes. An amazing spiritual legacy culminating with the Messiah. God himself coming in the flesh through the line of Abraham. 
these privileges and all of these blessings should automatically result with that nation being saved, don't you think? Should automatically result with, well, heck, they got the blood of Abraham, they've got the, somehow they got the same blood of the Christ coursing through their veins. They should just automatically be saved. And so the assumption and the expectation was that all from the physical descendant of Abraham should be saved. But that wasn't the case. And so many readers of the book of Romans, we don't get it so much now, but many readers, as they would read the book of Romans in Paul's day, they would say, Pastor Paul, you better explain yourself right now. What's up with God's promises? Your gospel seems to actually contradict all of those Old Testament promises. And so in verse 6, we read, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that God's promises are impotent. And at first sight, it, it seems that that's the case. Israel's failure to respond to the gospel does not make the word of God of no effect, but rather... Paul uses Israel's rejection of the Messiah to testify and, and affirm the truth of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty. And look at the 6b, if you will, the second half of verse 6. It says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's kind of tricky lingo, isn't it? They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Write this in your notes. Not everyone who is of physical Israel is of spiritual Israel. Paul answers their questions by explaining the reality of two Israels here. The difference is this. There's a spiritual Israel, and there's a physical Israel, and the distinction is very important. Because if belonging to physical Israel, the ethnic line itself is what makes a person a part of God's spiritual people, then Paul is in trouble, and the gospel that we've been studying for the last 32 weeks is not true. If Israel is saved simply by their ethnic background alone. Now, Paul does acknowledge Israel here as an ethnic people, but he also recognizes that not all of them are saved. We're going to see in chapter 11 that God does have a plan for Israel, and Paul affirms that. But in chapter 9, we see here in verse 6, not all of ethnic Israel is automatically saved. It's not a birthright, but it's a calling. Not all Israel who is Israel. Now, what is spiritual Israel? You guys are really going to have to roll up your sleeves. We are getting into some chapters that are going to take some concentration and focusing and deep, deep things here. So two different Israels, an ethnic Israel and a spiritual Israel. Who is this spiritual Israel? A lot of people say it's the Gentiles. It's the Gentiles who have been grafted in. These are spiritual Israel. And that is actually partially true, but not completely. The context of chapter 9, verse 6 through 13 that we read today 
tells us that there is a part of Israel that actually are Jewish that do believe in Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. You go to Israel today and you'll meet some of these. I was just in Israel a couple months ago and uh, we were up on Mount Carmel and we were studying the story of Elijah conquering the false prophets of Baal. And uh, there were some guys with big backpacks on their back, about 18 years old, about three boys. And they just came up and they're like, are you guys Christians? Because we can just, we can just tell that you guys love Jesus. And we're like, yeah, we are. You know, where are you from? And they're like, we're from Israel. And we're Christians too. We love Jesus. And they're like, we're Messianic Jews. And we would see them occasionally throughout our tour, just kind of randomly, they would pop up. In Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters of ministry, we had another group of Jews come up to us and said that as we worshipped and studied the Bible, that, that they could see just the glory of the Lord upon our group. And they just knew that Jesus was present there with us. And there are today Messianic Jews, Christian Jews. There are people who are Israel... And then there's Israelites that aren't of Israel. You guys, the brains exploded yet? Okay. Because there's a spiritual Israel and there's an ethnic Israel. Now, Paul is going to give us two examples from the Old Testament to prove his point. That there's indeed a true Israel, a physical and spiritual Okay, so these two different Old Testament passages that we look at. Let's look at verse 7. Not all Israel who are Israel, and then verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, I know that it's Father's Day, and by the way, Happy Father's Day. I said it before church started, but uh, some of you just got here. So Happy Father's Day. And I know you guys were really like wanting a good Father's Day motivational speech, right? Something like that. And Lindsay and I actually were just praying yesterday. We're like, gosh, should we like first summer in the park? Should we really dive into predestination and election and God's plan for Israel? I mean, that's really going to draw people off the streets, right? It's the word of God, so hopefully. <laughs> and it was just funny because as I read this passage, I was like, you know what? There's, there's definitely, we see fathers in here. We see children in here. We see our Father's good pleasure in adopting us. And uh, happy Father's Day now. I've got a five-year-old boy, Russell, and I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old girl, Lainey. And, and uh, we listen to some children's worship tapes. And some of these children's tapes, they have this song that says, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Do you guys know this one? I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. Father Abraham had many sons. Many, and then you sing it, left arm. And then all the way through in every part of your body, by the end of like singing it six times, you're just wiggling and moving. And it's a great worship song. Kendra's actually going to do it at the end of uh, service today for all of us, just to get us ready for the barbecue. But have you ever sang that song, Father Abraham had many sons? And have you ever wondered, what in the world is this song about? <laughs> like, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm not a son of Abraham. Like, I'm an American, you know? 
and, and you are a son of Abraham, so let's just praise the Lord. You know, that little kid's song has a whole lot more theology in it than we even know. And Paul is explaining it to us here in this chapter. That there are children of Israel, children of Abraham, that are not all of the seed of Abraham. And of course there are some that are. Now you guys remember here, as it says there in verse 7, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Here's a little bit of history. You remember that Isaac was an old man. He was about 90 years old. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Isaac, I'm going to give you a son. And in your son, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay? I'm your shield. I'm your, I'm your great reward. And your descendants will be as the sand in the sea. And Abraham says, Lord, that is amazing. This is awesome. This is great. One small problem. I'm 90. My gal over here, Sarah, she's 80. And she's barren. We're getting ready to croak. And you're telling us that we're going to have kids? And when Sarah later on heard about it, she laughed. And God actually said to her, why are you laughing? And she goes, I didn't laugh. He goes, no, but you did laugh. And he says, I'm going to come back in a year. That's what this scripture is from. I'm going to come back in a year. And you're going to have a little boy. And so as Sarah and Abraham hear this promise, they do what all of us would do. They totally believe. And they start building a nursery onto their house. You know, a little baby's room. They buy pastel paint and paint duckies all over the wall. Getting ready for this child. No, they actually did what most of us would probably do in this situation. Sarah says, hey, I'm 80, my stuff ain't working. He's 90, his stuff ain't working. And so here's my milk maiden, you know, or my handmaiden, I guess is technically what she was. Maybe she milked cows, I don't know. But here is Hagar. Abraham, why don't you go into her and create a child for us? And, uh, and, that, and then God's promise will be fulfilled. And they do what so often we do try to help God out with his promises and so Abraham said hey you know you're the boss and so he did and he went into Hagar and they had a son he named that son Ishmael and Abraham basically brought Ishmael before the Lord and said God you are faithful here's my son here's this seed that all the nations of the earth will be blessed and the Lord says no that's not the son of the promise my promise was you and Sarah, that you guys would have a son. And through that son, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so it was through that son, through the son Isaac, through Isaac your seed shall be called. And it was through Isaac that there was going to be the covenant promises of salvation and the national promises the blessing of the, the coming Messiah would be through Isaac. Now, both Isaac and Ishmael were blessed by the Lord. But only through Isaac did the spiritual covenant come. Okay, so two boys were called, or two boys in the, in the children of Abraham, but only one was recognized. And look at verse 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, Abraham actually had many children. He had Isaac through Sarah. He had Ishmael through Hagar. He had Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ibshak, and Shua through Keturah. But God was going to bring the Messiah and the Messianic blessings through one of these children. He chose and he elected, he predestined and predetermined that the blessing was going to go to one child. And that one child was Isaac. The contrast here is that Ishmael was a labor of the flesh, was a work of the flesh. And God says, a work of the flesh, I will not recognize. And God didn't recognize Ishmael, but rather Isaac. In Genesis 22, 2, when God tells Abraham to take his son, his, you guys know it, his only son, and to go sacrifice him on the mountain that he would show him. At that point, Abraham had a bunch of kids. But the Lord said, take your son, your only son, the son that the promise is going to come through, and go and sacrifice him. And so the lesson here, you really just got to, you know, we're, we're just the fast food culture and the get home as fast as we can and flip on the TV and veg out. You know, we, we got to do our homework. We got to do our book work here in, in 9 through 11. You got to do some push-ups and some stretches before you come to church so that you can have some physical capacity to work out here through the Word. But what we're learning here is just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a child. What we're learning here is that it's a matter of the heart, not a matter of the blood. What we're learning here is it's a matter of grace and God's sovereign choosing, God's sovereign calling, God's gracious gift. It's not a matter of the flesh. It's not a matter of lineage. It's not a matter of genealogy. As one scholar said, what counts is grace, not race. What counts is grace, not race. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in a big argument with the guys that were trying to get there according to the flesh. Oh my gosh. The Pharisees. And he tells them, he who the son sets free right is free indeed. And the Pharisees say, hey, okay. we're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anybody. Now, if you know Israel history, you know that's not true. They've been in bondage to a lot of people. And Jesus goes on to say, you know what? If you were sons of Abraham, you would do what God is telling you to do, and that is repent and believe on me. But because you're not, and because you want to kill me, this is what he says, you're sons of the devil. That's a way to win friends and influence people right there. Jesus' PR guy was like, no, 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 let's stick to multiplying bread and fish, buddy. <laughs> not calling people devils. And so... Got the Holy Spirit blowing through here. Yes, Lord. And so what Jesus is telling the Pharisees there is that you guys, you have Abraham's blood in you. 
but you don't have faith. You haven't responded to grace. And even though you're Abraham's descendants, you're really sons of the devil. John says before that in John chapter 1, verse 13, he says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In John chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, what we have actually there in those verses are we have both God's sovereignty, calling men, initiating salvation, and we also have man's responsibility. As man, it says there, receives Jesus. That's just rest. That's no work. Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham didn't work, but he believed in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. God initiated, and people received that initiation. And to them, the right has been given to be called sons and daughters of God. We're almost done. We're just going to cover one of these three aspects today. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, and remember, we're, we're talking here, the promise of God transcends human expectation. Okay? In Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist is calling the Pharisees to repentance. And he says to them, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. See, to God, really, that's how important bloodline is. If I really wanted a bunch of children, I could just pop them up from stones. But the real children of Abraham aren't children merely through the seed or through the flesh, but they're children through faith. They're children that just like their dad who believed in God and it was accounted to them for righteousness, they too believe in God. John chapter 8 there. You're not of Abraham, you're of your father the devil. In Romans chapter 2, and this is our last reference, it says in verse 25, why don't you flip there? the same book that we're in this morning, Romans 2, 25 through 3, 4. It says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written codes and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? Now listen to this, you guys. This is the, the point that Paul's been making. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, 
in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. If you uh, jump to the next chapter there, in chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so today, the main point that we just want to go home with is that God is faithful to his promises. Sometimes we don't rightly understand God's promises, and so we've got to dig into the Word. Why are there some Israelites who are in hell today? People with Abraham's blood that got to be part of God's glory in the temple, got to be part of the sacrificial system, got to be part of the lineage of David and, and the lineage of the Messiah. Why are there some who are in hell today? Because salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by the flesh. But it's by grace. It's by grace. And we want to make it fleshly. That's our bent. That's our default. We constantly fall back into that regularly. But God's promises, they transcend human expectation. Today, may we learn from Abraham, of which we're sons. We're sons and daughters of Abraham, even though we're Gentiles here today. Why? Because we believe just like he believed. We believe in God, and it's accounted to us for righteousness. In a, in a week, we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel was supposed to be. It all culminates in Jesus. We see Jesus is the true and better Isaac. He's the true and better Jacob. He's the true and better Israel. He's the victorious one. And we're going to come and we're going to close here. And we have the communion table open. And as we come on up this morning, don't come packing your own righteousness. Do not come thinking that you are in and of yourself holy and righteous before God. But as you come, just you believed in Jesus. You, you're the whosoever. You can just know I'm part of the elect. We can rejoice and worship in that. And you can come and just grab the, the cup and the bread today. You can remember Jesus' shed blood and his broken body as he laid down himself for our sins. And you can say, you know what, I'm, 
I'm elect and I can stand here today saved. Not by works of righteousness that I have done in my flesh. Producing some kind of Ishmael. But because like Abraham, I believe in God. It's accounted to me for righteousness. And so we thank the Lord in communion for the blood and for the body. We get to worship and we get to take comfort today as Kendra closes us. And Kendra, you can come on up. We get to worship and take comfort in the fortress of God's election and in the fortress of God's predestination, that God's sovereignty of God's calling. And don't even think to say to yourself today, well, you know what? I choose not to believe, so I must not be elect. And so God just must not have called me, and so I'm going to leave this park a bitter person. No, election is really a family language. It's really something that we used to talk about amongst Christians. But until that final day, we don't exactly know who all is, is part of that. And by His grace, God has called you here today to hear the message of salvation, that if you just believe, you'll be saved. You will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And right now where you're at, you can just say, Lord, thank you for bringing me here. I don't know why you brought me here. I don't know why these people were meeting in the park today, and so I just thought I'd come sit down. I, I wasn't a part of that. Well, that's, Lord, you, you've drawn me here. Lord, you've let me hear of your great love and your great sovereignty and your great knowledge and your great sacrifice for me. And I, I just want to respond to that. I want to respond to your love, Lord. I want to lay down all the works that I would bring to the table that might merit me some salvation. And I want to just rest in what you've already done, Jesus. So let's worship today. If that's you, just yield, just surrender. Maybe for the first time ever, you'll come to the communion table and you'll get the cup and the bread and you'll just have a special time today to sit your seat just saying, Lord, for the first time, I get to thank you for your sacrifice, for your death that I might live. For you Christians, let's worship in the bastion, in the fortress of God's omniscience, of God's foreknowledge, of God's electing purposes. Let's say it right now, Romans 11, you know, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he should pay him back? For of him and to 
Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I told you, you got to be okay with a cliffhanger today. Man, there's just so much. I mean, I have I have a lot of pages of notes left. I was actually planning on doing it today. <laughs> Praise God, I'm not going to. Don't worry. But just allow the cliffhanger and just dive in this week reading Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just every week, let's make that our goal to read these three chapters and just saturate ourselves in God's Word in the context of what we'll be studying. Let's worship this morning and come on up as you're ready. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.